Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Take your Bible and join me this evening in the book of Hebrews, the 12th chapter, Hebrews chapter 12. And what we're actually going to do is allow verses 1 through 3 to serve as our uh, test case tonight as we look at the first major step in the interpretive process, observation, uh, what do I see? Let me read for you Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through verse 3. And uh, this will prepare us then for working through this particular concept this evening. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. When it comes to properly interpreting and teaching the Bible, there are a number of steps that we need to process and that we need to follow. And the first one is that process known as observation, where you look at the text and ask the question, what do I see? If you look at the top of page two, observation, what do I see? Becoming a diligent and trained student of Scripture is essential to the task of teaching the Bible. Unfortunately, many are stagnant when it comes to growing in their knowledge of the Bible. And I doubt anything causes me more grief than to go to churches all around our country and meet persons who have been believers for many, many years but they're basically infants in terms of their knowledge of the Bible. They're still uh, on Gerber's baby food. They're still sucking a bottle. And as far as being able to rightly divide the word of truth themselves, uh, being able to go into the word of God and study it for themselves and then to articulate out of that uh, an understanding of biblical truth and a theological understanding of the Bible, they're simply inadequate and incapable of doing so. And it does cause me great grief and it bothers me to know that so many are ill-prepared to defend the faith as well as to define the faith as well. Well, why is it that we aren't in the Bible? Well, there are a number of possibilities here. Motivation, we don't have the energy or see the necessity of why we should study the Bible. Or perhaps it is the problem of priorities. I'm just too busy and I just don't have the time to give to a study of the Word of God in a more in-depth kind of a way. I think perhaps the greatest problem is that of technique. And many people just don't know how to study the Bible. And so the Bible is something of a mystery to them. They treat it with uh, hands extended at arm's length. And as a result of not knowing 
how to study the Bible, they don't study the Bible. And then the problem of preoccupation. Oh, I'm going to get to it one of these days, and one of these days turns into weeks and months and years and sometimes even decades in the life of some people. Well, why is it that we need to study the Bible? Well, the Scriptures give us a number of reasons. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14 reminds us it is the means whereby we develop spiritual maturity and, and godly wisdom. I like to define godly wisdom as the ability to see life from God's perspective and then react and respond to it with his mind. I think that's an excellent definition of wisdom. It is the ability to see life from God's perspective, not from man's perspective, certainly not from fallen man's perspective. But in seeing life as God sees life, we have the ability to react and to respond to whatever situation may arise and to do so with the mind of Christ. Again, First Peter 2, 2 reminds us that Scripture is the primary means of our spiritual growth. And Paul reminds us in Romans that ultimately our goal is to grow to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Howard Hendricks, who taught uh, interpretation hermeneutics at Dallas Seminary for almost 50 years, one of the most uh, gifted, uh, articulate Bible teachers that I ever had the joy of listening to said, well, you know, when it comes to the Bible, there are really three kinds of students. To some, it's like castor oil, bitter, hard to take. To others, it's more like shredded wheat, dry, but nourishing. But to a third group, it is like peaches and cream. They just can't get enough. Well, I like the idea of nourishing, but I also like the idea that you just can't get enough of your study of the Word of God. I personally was not always this way. In fact, when I was in high school, I never read a book. I never wrote a paper. I went to a very poor uh, school system there in Georgia. It wasn't required. When God called me to the ministry, terrified me to no end because I did not know how to study. I did not know how to write. But God gave me something I'd never had before, and that was a desire to study, a desire to get into the Bible. And something that for 20 years of my life had meant very little to me now became a consuming uh, passion of mine. And it still is now at the 49-year mark, some 29 years later. And I really do fall into the peaches and cream category. People sometimes will say to me, well, what do you do for relaxation and leisure? Well, I, 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 I walk. Uh, I play with my dog. I, I hug and kiss my wife. I do watch 24 every Monday night. And um, after that, uh, I study. And I read. And you say, well, don't you find study to be difficult? I find it to be a blessing. I love to be in my study reading the text, reading commentaries, investigating Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias, and just digging out the marvelous nuggets that you find in the Word of God. And for me, uh, it is no labor. It does not stress me. It does not fatigue me. Indeed, it is something that greatly blesses my life. And I would indeed pray that that would be true for all of us when it comes to approaching the Word of God. Second Timothy 2.15, the Bible gives the only guidelines to follow for presenting ourselves to God in a manner that is approved by him, as Romans 12 also says. So the bottom line of Christian experience is how we answer three questions, excuse me, that we should ask ourselves daily. Number one, is the Lord well pleased? Number two, is the work well done? And number three, is the word well used? Top of page three, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 reminds us that scripture is profitable for four things. Doctrine, 
That is teaching what I should believe, rebuke for God letting me know when I am out of bounds, correction that I might get back on the right path and be conformed to the image of Christ and for training in righteous living that I might indeed grow in the graces of holiness and godliness as God indeed conforms me more and more to the image of Christ. Ephesians tells us all of this is that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so study is a necessary means of being able to serve Christ. And when it comes to Bible uh, study and and the issue of hermeneutics and even preparation for teaching, uh, there are four skills that we need to master. And we're going to examine number one tonight, but skill number one, observation, what do I see? Skill number two, interpretation, what does it mean? Skill number three, correlation, how does it all fit together? How does it integrate? Now we're moving toward what we call systematic or Christian theology, and fourthly, application. How does it work? How can I translate what I now understand to my own experience so that my own personal life is transformed and changed? So, the first major step in Bible study is what we call observation, and there are two major things I want you to know about it. Number one, it is that developing the ability to see and determining what the text says, or if you like, underline this next statement. If you're a note taker, observation is taking a good, hard look at what is in the text. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but if you take a good, hard look at Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, you'll notice that the word endurance or endure occurs very strategically in all three verses. It's in verse 1, it's in verse 2, it's in verse 3. So whatever he is talking about, the idea of endurance is fundamental and foundational to it. You'd also note that the phrase, let us, occurs several times in verse 1. And again, you find the same concept in verse 2. You see the phrase set before us in verse 1 and set before him in verse 2. So there's a parallelism that is drawn between us verse 1, and Christ in verse 2. And you would see those kind of things by just taking a good, hard look at the text. You'll notice that the verse begins, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded, the author, whoever it is, uh, doesn't speak uh, in isolation from those to whom he is writing. He includes himself and says, Look, I'm right there with you. Uh, these that need to press on in the race of the Christian life, hey, I'm right there with you. I, I'm not saying that I've arrived. I'm not speaking to you from a position of superiority. And so just taking those kind of observations is what we mean by taking a good, hard look. Now, why is it that, that so many people don't get more out of the Bible? Well, I think there are at least two reasons. Number one, we don't know how to read. At least we don't know how to read well. But secondly, and this may be even more important, we don't know what to look for. In other words, we haven't been taught to be good investigators, almost like a detective who goes into the text trying to figure out exactly what is the the core uh, central truth in this text and how is it that the author then wrapped up that core central truth with the other supporting data that he has there in uh, his text. And so there are three things, A, B, and C, that we need to do under developing the ability to see and determining what the text says. We need to learn to read intelligently, 
intentionally and interactively. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, intelligently following good, wise, interpretive principles. Intentionally. Uh, we are looking for clues. We're looking for particular uh, ideas and, and keys and, and uh, hints. From the author that inform us as to why it is he said what he said in the way that he said it. Uh, interactively, we get into the text. You, you need to crawl into that thing and in essence personalize it. Therefore, you, Danny Aiken, since you are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, whatever that means, you need to lay aside every weight. You need to lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares you, and you need to run with endurance the race that is set before you. All of a sudden, that becomes a lot more personal. I can't say, well, Paul was just talking to a bunch of first century Jews. No, maybe Paul didn't even write Hebrews or whoever it is. We've got to deal with that in a moment as well. But whoever was the author, I can't say that he was talking to them. No, the ultimate author is God. And God is talking to me. And so if I engage the text in an interactive way, then it becomes far more difficult for me to walk away from it and to ignore it. In other words, I'm going to question the text, but I'm going to let the text question me. And I'm going to let the Word of God ask me questions and put issues before me that I personally must deal with. So a couple of rules for reading the Bible. We do want to learn to read better. Uh, We want to learn to read faster, but faster in the sense of comprehension. So you can do two things here. First of all, learn to read it as for the first time. Uh, This is the advantage of reading the text in the original language, if you can. Now, you say, well, Danny, I can't read Greek. All right, fine. Get you a, I'm using the New King James. Go out and get you an NIV. Go out and buy you the New American Standard. Go out and buy you a copy of the uh, English Standard Version. Go out and buy you a copy of the of the English Version, the TV, TEV. Go out and get the, the message by Eugene Peterson. Go out and buy a copy of the New Living Translation. Get another kind of translation, two or three preferably, that you normally don't use. And read them alongside the translation you normally use. And again, I promise you, you will be able to move closer to that principle of reading it for like as if it were the very first time you have ever looked at this particular text. Secondly, as I said a moment ago, under interactively, learn to read it as a a love letter. Understand that God wrote his word for you. God wrote his word to you. He wrote you because he loves you. He wrote you because he wanted to save you. He wrote you because he wants to change your life. And so make it very personal when you study the scriptures. Page four. Uh, We need to read the Bible thoughtfully, raising the question, what is God trying to teach me? Uh, Repeatedly, because when you read it repeatedly, especially in multiple translations, you will see things you didn't see previously. You'll see new things that will that will come to the surface that you did not see the first, the second, the third or the fourth time. Uh, I don't want to get it my my facts incorrect here, but I believe I read at one point uh, that G. Campbell Morgan said he would never preach through any book of the Bible until he had read through it at least 50 times. 
50 times reading through it before he then would begin to prepare to preach and teach through it. I think he suspected that he would see things that reading 45, 48, and 50 that perhaps he did not see at reading 1, 2, and 3. I think that's a wise, wise principle. Often you need to read it at one sitting. You say, why? Well, remember this, folks. When the book of Hebrews, for example, was written, and it was passed on to these Jewish Christians, you know how many copies the initial audience had of the book of Hebrews? One. And you know what would happen? The, uh, the, the, the elder, the pastor, would get up, And he would read this letter, this book, to the congregation. And almost certainly, whether it was Romans or 1st or 2nd Corinthians or working our way all the way uh, through the book to the Revelation, most likely uh, they read the whole book in a single sitting. Uh, They didn't get in and out in 30 minutes or 45 minutes or an hour. They came for, for church. They stayed a while. And can you imagine how excited they would have been when they received for the first time the epistle to the Hebrews. And so reading the whole book gives you the big picture so that later on, when you begin to slot in the details, the details will fit within the grander overall context of the book. I start at the beginning. If I were going to teach through uh, just Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, I would know what's in chapters 1 through 11. Uh, I would know that from chapter 1 that uh, the book of Hebrews is written to tell us that Jesus Christ is the best that God has to offer. And I would find out in reading through a commentary or a Bible dictionary that the word better occurs 13 times in the book of Hebrews. And so he is better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's better than any high priest. And so, my goodness... Why would you not, verse 2, look to Jesus? And so going back and working your way through allows the text to become more uh, alive to you. And you will then be less likely to wrongly or incorrectly interpret what is there. You want to read patiently. Let the Spirit of God work in your heart and in your life. If you happen to be here tonight and, and you are a Bible teacher... And let's say you are a Bible teacher who teaches on Sunday. I plead with you in the name of Jesus, don't start your study on Friday or Saturday before you're going to teach the next day or the day after. You say, all right, you're you're teaching here on Wednesday nights. That's right. When do you start preparing for next Wednesday night? Oh, I did about two months ago. I've been preparing for next week for two months. And I know next week I'm going to deal with interpretation. And I am thinking all the time in light of what I'm doing tonight, what I'll be doing next week and the next week. But especially during the seven days leading back up to next Wednesday, I'll be thinking about what I'm going to teach next Wednesday night. And it gives God the chance to impress my heart, to bring illustrations into my life, to show me an application. You miss out on that, boys and girls, if you start with the Saturday night special. And by the way, most of your people recognize when you show up with a Saturday night special, too, because it doesn't look very good. Now, I realize sometimes you've got an emergency. Just be honest. That's about one out of a million. I don't buy that. I do not accept that. I just do not. You say you've never done a Saturday night special. No, I haven't. And I'll say that arrogantly. But no, I haven't. Because I think what I am doing is so important. I would not dare. Wait till the day before to start letting God speak to my heart about what's in this text.
No, I'm doing work months in advance, and then I'm doing very intensive work about a seven-day period of time. In other words, I'll already start thinking about next Wednesday night uh, at about 8.15 tonight. And I'll be thinking about it all week long. The same thing with when I teach on Sunday. The same thing with when I teach and preach in our chapel services. I am always giving God plenty of time to let his spirit work patiently in my life. Sometimes you read selectively. uh, There's something specific here for me. And you want to just zero in on that particular truth and try to let God really drive it deep into your soul. Let her see when we read the Bible, we need then to ask the six famous questions. You know what they are. Who, what, where, where, when, and how. But first of all, who? Who is the author of the book? Well, Hebrews, we don't know. Uh, we know he was a Jewish Christian. We know that it certainly has Paul's theology, but it has Luke's style. Uh, you would learn that from reading a commentary, reading a Bible encyclopedia, a Bible dictionary. But we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, and so it's, it's anonymous. To whom is the book written? Well, we don't know that specifically, but we know it generally. It was written to Jewish Christians who evidently were undergoing persecution... And some of them were thinking about turning their back on Christ and going back into Judaism. That's why he says in chapter 12, since we're surrounded by the cloud of witnesses, lay aside the weight, get rid of the sin which easily uh, ensnares you, and run with endurance, looking where? Back to Judaism? No, looking forward to Jesus. Well, why is Jesus better than Judaism? Well, I'm glad you asked, and he'll tell you there in verse 2. And so knowing the context of what he is doing will help you interpret the text more accurately. Uh, Who are the characters in the book? Well, again, we really don't know uh, because we know some characters that are mentioned from Old Testament history. But as far as the specific audience, I mean, this isn't like he's writing to the church at Rome or to the church at Corinth or that he's writing to Timothy or to Titus or Philemon. He is writing whoever it is. To Hebrew Christians going through persecution, thinking about turning their back on Christ and going back into Judaism. That we do know. Uh, to whom is he speaking? Well, he's speaking to Jewish Christians who are struggling, etc., 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 which just means I just keep bombarding the book and bombarding the text with who, 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 who. Secondly, what? Uh, what is the atmosphere of the book or passage? Is it friendly? A little bit. Chastening at some places, loving, no doubt about it. But basically, Hebrews is an exhortation. In fact, at the very end of the book, he basically calls his text a exhortation. Verse 22, I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation. For I have written to you in few words. By the way, just playfully, just playfully, some have said that that may be the indication in verse 22 that this book was written by a woman. Because it says, I've written to you in few words, but doggone, they took 13 chapters. That's not few words, but then a woman wouldn't think 13 chapters is a few words. I am just kidding now. Okay? I am just kidding. I'm not serious about that. Don't you write me a letter. Don't you send me an email. Uh, I, I think I told some of you one time that on a radio show, uh, we were going through Revelation verse by verse and got to chapter 11. And there's a text there that says, and there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I looked at my friend. I said, now that's the verse that proves there are no women in heaven because a woman can't be quiet for half an hour. We laughed. Ha, ha, ha. Boy, I got a letter. 
that would peel paint off of any wall. I mean, this woman took me to task up one side, down the other, told me she loved me, but now she hated me, told me she used to listen to me. She ain't never listened to me again. I was a male showing this dog scum sucking pig. I ought to be ashamed of my, I mean, she wore me out. So I groveled, and I thank God she actually put her name on it, gave a return address. So I wrote her back, said, I am, you are right. I am the lowest of the low, the scummiest of the scum. I am sorry. I repent. I am in sackcloth and ashes right now. Anything else you want me to do, I'll do it. Please forgive me. She wrote me again. Now you've made me feel bad for writing you the first letter. So... Let's just say that I forgive you, you forgive me, and you won't do that anymore. So I'm not doing that anymore. I was just playing, okay? So don't take that seriously. But it is a book of encouragement. But encouragement in the sense that he's kind of behind them, kicking them in the seat of the pants. Saying, come on now. Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. He made a perfect sacrifice. Have you lost your mind? You need to press forward in Christ. Uh, What is the author's general topic? It's the superiority of Christ. That's what runs from chapter 1 to chapter 13. What is the context? Well, Hebrews 12 is preceded by what? Hebrews 11. What is Hebrews 11 about? Faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so what does he tell us in verse 2 of chapter 12? Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of what? Our faith. He begins it. He completes it. Why would you ever think of putting your eyes anywhere other than on Jesus? All right. What are the key words? Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, you find the word endurance in verse 1. The word endured in verse 2. Two, the word endured in verse 3. I don't think there's any question that Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, is challenging you and me to endurance, to steadfastness, to no matter what may be going on in your life, stay in the race, keep your eyes on Jesus, keep your heart and mind set on Him, and if you will do so, into verse 3, you won't get weary and you won't get discouraged. In other words, you won't think about dropping out of the race and going back to your old way of life. For them, going back into Judaism, for you, that may mean something else. You know, this Christian life just isn't cut out to, to be what I thought it would be. Well, guess what? Your eyes are probably in the wrong place. Yeah, but you don't know what I'm going through. Well, did you see what he went through? He endured the cross. Nobody's but you on a cross. In fact, look at verse 4 to get it in its context. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed in your striving against sin. He did. You haven't. You think you've got it bad? Really? God's poured out his wrath on you? I don't think so. Instead, he poured it out on his son. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Stay in the race. Focus your mind on him. He'll get you to the finish line. He's the author and finisher of faith. Uh, moved to then number three, when? When was the book written? We're not sure. Most likely, though, before A.D. 70. You say, why? Because he talked as if the temple is still in existence. When did this event happen in relationship to other events? We really don't know. When was this prophecy fulfilled? Well, there's no prophecy in this text. When questions are important to ask, especially in narrative literature, such as the Gospels, this will help us with time perspective. Well, we don't really have a time perspective here, so that question is not going to be that pertinent to us. Move to page 5. Where? Where was the book written? Well, we don't know. It's anonymous. 
Where were the recipients of the book living? We're not sure, though. Many believe they were living in Rome and that they were on the precipice of the Neronian persecution. And that would then bring this into at least some context. But again, if I were teaching this, I would tell you that's a possibility. But I would say nothing more than that because I won't tell you what I can't tell you. And so we want to be honest and say this is what is one one hypothesis, one possibility, but we're not certain. Can you locate the places mentioned on a map where there's really nothing in this text and there's really nothing throughout the totality of the book? Where else does this topic appear in Scripture? Well, that's an interesting subject. Uh, Is it the case that authors of the Scripture use any other athletic metaphors to talk about the Christian life? Well, it certainly does. Paul talks about it being a boxing match in in 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, Paul talks about it being a wrestling match in Ephesians 6. Uh, Paul talks about it being an athletic contest in 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 7, about verse 3 or 4 there. Uh, He also talks about it being a race in 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Timothy 4, his swan song. Uh, I have fought the fight, I have run my race. You know, so, yeah, these ideas are found elsewhere in Scripture uh, as well. And that's very helpful to us in our understanding of a text. Number five, why was the book written? Well, it was written because they were thinking about turning their back on Christ. Why does he include this material and not other material? Well, sometimes we just don't have an answer to that. But I'd say this. Every author talks about what he thinks is important. And every author talks about what he thinks is important for the particular audience to whom he is writing. Why does the author give so much space to that topic and so little to another? Well, the reason he talks so much about Christ is because he is the key, and they're thinking about walking away from the key. Furthermore, evidently, false teachers at least deceive them enough into thinking Judaism is at least as good, if not better, than this new way in Christ. The old covenant is just as good as the new covenant. And he is saying, no, it's not. And in fact, if you work your way through Hebrews, you know that there are five devastating warning passages. And in chapter 6 and chapter 10 in particular, he says, you go back from Christ, there's no, there's no sacrifice for you. Now, whatever that means, it means you turn your back on. In fact, in one place he says, you turn your back on Christ, you trample over his blood, and you count his blood sacrifice as an unworthy thing. Now, that will keep you from turning your back on Christ. I mean, who among us would want to say, I think his blood is worthless. Let me trample over it. So he gets very vivid in his instruction to get them to move forward. Question number six, how? How many? How many times does the author use the same word in this book, in this chapter? Well, as I told you earlier, he used the word better 13 times. He used the word endurance three times here in just these first uh, three verses of chapter 12. Uh, How long? How much? How does he do this? Say this. How does this relate to the preceding statement, to the succeeding statement? Well, just one example there. What does chapter 12, verse 1 begin with? Therefore. And, of course, we learn in hermeneutics and seminary and Bible college that the therefore is there for a reason. It always points you back. Well, if you go back into chapter 11, he has told you that without faith it is impossible to please God. He has given you this great listing of men and women of faith. Verse 40, God hadn't provided something better for us that they should be made perfect. They should not be made perfect apart from us. Therefore, we also. In other words, there they are pulling for you, cheering for you, and they will not feel satisfied unless you join them in this great cloud of witnesses. So there's an intimate connection between chapter 12 and chapter 11. My good friend Al Mohler has a sermon 
on Hebrews 1, 1, or excuse me, Hebrews 11, 1 through chapter 12, verse 3. And he doesn't think you really can get 12, 1 through 3 without seeing the flow of the entirety of chapter 11. I think he can make a pretty good argument for that, though I don't teach it exactly that way. I certainly agree with his sentiment and his heart for doing so. So as we read, we're to read how prayerfully recalling God's promises and claiming them. You won't grow weary and you won't get discouraged if you consider and keep your eyes on Jesus. It won't happen imaginatively identifying with the readers. They were thinking about going back to Judaism. What have you thought about going back to? When you came to Christ, what did you turn your back on? And now you're maybe thinking about going back to it because it, from a distance, seems more sweet than it was when you were there. Reflectively, meditatively taking time. Purposefully, what is the purpose of his instruction in light of? Acquisitively, how can I hold on to what I am studying? Well, one of the ways, of course, is to memorize it. Then telescopically, how do I see this particular text, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, for example, in the light of the whole of the book, the whole of the New Testament, the whole of Scripture? Is there other places in the Bible where we've seen people turn their back on Christ? And what were the tragic results of that? Top of page 16, our second major step, learn what to look for. Uh, To see the text is to observe what information God has put in a biblical passage. See the details. Seek meaning from those details. Make all the possible observations from a text that you can. So you say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, let me give you very quickly four things. Number one, look for the key terms. Now, folks, this is me. I teach my students this. Whenever I study a text, I get out a pencil and I mark the verbs. Verbs are action words. I track the verbs. I track the action words because that will give you the thought line. If we were looking at this text, therefore, we also, since we are, number one, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and implied lay aside the sin which so easily, what, ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do I do that? It's a participle, but it's part of a verbal pattern. Looking unto Jesus, often finish of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, same phrase that ended chapter 12, verse 1, endured the cross, despising the shame, sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. I mark the verbs. And then I go back and see how they help me see the flow of the argument. So verbs, significant concepts, repetition, things that are emphasized, repeated, related, and how they're related, things that are alike, where you see the the simile words like or as, things that are unlike or unusual, where you see contrasting words like but or however, things that are true to life. And you're just looking for key terms and key concepts as you saturate the text uh, with your questions and you saturate your mind with the text. You look for atmosphere, last words or lasting words. You observe relationships, and I will just note that there are grammatical relationships, logical relationships. The logical relationship is this. If you'll consider him who endured such hostility from against himself, 
You won't grow weary and be discouraged in your soul. It's a cause and effect. Consider him. You don't get discouraged and weary. Keep your eyes on him. You don't get discouraged and weary. There's a cause and effect kind of relationship there that's very logical. A psychological. And here, of course, he talks about being weary and being discouraged. Contextual. Uh, where you look at the context of the text in light of the text itself, the book itself, the entirety of the Bible. A relationship in genre. Well, by this we mean simply this. What kind of literature are we looking at? Well, Hebrews is somewhat teaching. It's certainly not narrative here in chapter 12. It's not poetic. It's not parabolic. It's not a miracle story. It's not prophetic. It's not apocalyptic. It's basically didactic. Uh, It is a teaching text telling you and me how we can grow in our sanctification as we keep our eyes and mind on Christ. Then number four on page seven, seek meaning from the details of a passage. And I just note by that we mean to ask questions, answer questions, analyze answers, and apply our answers just very quickly asking questions. You must learn of any text to ask many good questions. We've talked about who, what, where, when, why, and how. But you should also ask questions of the words. Ask questions of the relationship between the words. Ask what the words mean today. But even more importantly, number two, ask what the words meant at the time that they were written. In other words, we ask how the Bible or the author uses those words elsewhere and how other biblical authors perhaps use them as well. And again, concordances, uh, marginal references in your study Bible, these things will be helpful to you. And so we're just, again, bombarding the text with questions, background questions, fact questions, meaning questions, application questions. Now, you might say, well, Danny, how are you doing all this? I always have a blank notepad by my side. Have a blank notepad, have a highlighter. Highlighting in my Bible, anything I see, I just start taking notes. I see that word endurance, I put it down. Oh my goodness, it's in verse 2. It's in verse 3. So out beside endurance, I'll put verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. I'll see the phrase set before us, verse 1. Oh, it's there again, set before him, verse 2. I write that down. I see that he says, I'm running in a race. My mind then says, all right, does the Bible ever talk about a race anywhere else? What do I do? I get a concordance. I look up the word race. I look up all the references where the word race is there. I find some of them will help me in my understanding of this text. Some of them may not. I look, think of race. I say, well, what are other athletic metaphors? Boxing, wrestling, um, what else does he use in the Bible? Boxing, wrestling. Well, those ones that step out of my mind. There are some others as well. I'll go look and see if I find those things in text that would be helpful to my study as well. So then we answer the questions, top of page 8, and we analyze our answers. And then just note this. You will analyze your answers with the following five tests. I'll just note these very quickly. The test of authenticity. Can you make a good case that your interpretation is authentic, uh, that it is real? The test of unity. Is there unity of meaning between the terms, the affirmations, the interpretation of their text? Or is there a contradiction or discrepancy in your interpretation? The test of consistency. Is your interpretation consistent with the rest of the chapter, the book, the entirety of the Bible? Uh, Can you explain your apparent difficulty if one has arisen? The test of simplicity. Is your interpretation simple, straightforward, or is it contrived, plain, or mystical? Easily stated and understood or heavily supported by illusions and concoctions or arguments. In other words, if you have to say to me, now I understand, Danny, on face, uh, on, on the initial reading, at face value, it looks like it says this, but, 
It actually means this. I'm a little, I'm a little cynical of you already. Back when Southeastern was still a liberal school, uh, as some of us were just arriving, they used to do lectionary readings from uh, the lectionary in chapel. And on one particular occasion, the lectionary reading happened to be 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 15, which is the text that says that women are not to teach or be in authority over men. And it just so happened that the professor who was reading the text that day in chapel was liberal-oriented in his theology. So he got up and he said, our text today is 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15. And let me say this before I read it. I know what you think it means, but I assure you it doesn't. I know you think you know what it means, but I assure you that it doesn't. He read it, and then he said, now, I know the text seems to indicate that women should not be teaching or an authority over men, but that's not what it means. Now, you said, what did he say it meant? Well, he never told us. Now, if you do that to me, again, warning signs are going to go off, and bells and whistles are going to sound, and I'm going to be concerned. And I'll say this to you before I move on very quickly. If you are the only person to interpret a text in a particular kind of a way, you may be right, but you're probably not. I mean, you're in essence saying all of Christendom got it wrong until, bless God, I showed up. That is so highly, highly, highly unlikely as to really not even be worth discussing. You say, you've never seen a text in a way that nobody else did? No, and if I did, it would scare the daylights out of me, and I'd be certain I understood it wrong, and I need to go back and look at it again. I'm not that smart, and neither are you. Test number five, honesty. Have you been careful not to read yours or others' prejudgments and preconceptions into the text? And so I'll close with this tonight and let you read the remainder on your own. Since our interpretations are not infallible, we must always leave open the possibility for change as new evidence and or questions are brought to bear on the interpretation. In other words, though I have to come to a point where I believe I've understood the text... Never would I be so arrogant as to say to anyone I know once and for all, decidedly, decisively, no questions to be asked. I've got it down exactly right. No one should ever be that arrogant in handling eternal truth. We're not that smart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your instruction on how we can study your word. Lord, help us to take a good, long, good, hard look at it. Look at those words. Look at those logical relationships. Look at the context. Ask the question, Lord, what are you saying to me? Yeah, there's a cloud of witnesses, men and women who have gone before all of us, who ran in a race, crossed the finish line, heard from you, well done, good and faithful servant. And so, Lord, since we have them there to encourage us, let us lay aside weights that would slow us down and the sin that would entangle and trip us up. And let us run with endurance. That means patience. Steadfastness. It's not a sprinter's race. It's a long-distance race. And, Lord, how can I run a long-distance race and not get tired and discouraged and drop out of the race? Well, you've told me. I need to fix my eyes on Jesus. I need to consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. I need to consider and think about and look to him who, despising the shame of the cross, died for my sins. And where is he today? He sits at the right hand of the throne of God. 
If we're faithful to run like Jesus, we too someday will be honored and exalted by you. There's our motivation. There's our pattern. May we be faithful to follow it to the end. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.